It's Monday the 14th of October 2019. My name's Alex Elliott and you're listening to The Week in Iceland, the programme that asks what's been happening in Iceland this week, why it happened and why we should care. I'm joined this week by District Court Attorney Claudia Ashoni-Wilson and by architect and food critic Shruti Basapa. Welcome to you both. Thank, Thank you. you. Now, um, one of the focal points this past week has been the Arctic Circle Assembly held at Harpa, um, which attracted the usual mix of students, scientists, politicians, artists and business people. A new law aiming to make sure Iceland continues to be seen as one of the good guys in the global fight against money laundering and terrorist financing means that some 300 organisations will now have to register their activities with the authorities. At the start of the week, we reported findings that suggest Icelandic children eat less varied food at school and waste more uh, than their Scandinavian peers. Government cutbacks in Denmark could see the long-standing position of Professor of Icelandic at Copenhagen University disappear. But now Iceland has stepped in, saying it will pay for the post if need be, although begrudgingly so. Um, Thingvetli National Park could lose its UNESCO World Heritage Site status over a dispute about diving in the Silvera Canyon. Skutustadarrepur joins several other municipalities, including Reykjavik, in publishing its new diversity policy. And after the Icelandic men's football team were separated by a single penalty from world champions France this Friday, they really need to beat Andorra this evening to keep their Euro 2020 dreams alive. So where would you like to begin? I know I've taken you by surprise with a couple of these items. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, the Arctic uh, Circle Assembly, that was uh, interesting. Mm. Um, I, I must say I, I admire the Icelandic uh, approach. Um, obviously, there is threat to the, the Arctic uh, with global warming and, and, and so forth. So I admire... Um, the proposal or at least the action plan that is in place right now. Um, of course, the goals are rather ambitious, but we've seen steps taken by the government um, uh, with uh, with, um, uh, private sect- with the private sector to try and, and um, combat this in some way. Um, yeah, so uh, one of the, the topics or some of the things that Katrin discussed at, at the Arctic Circle, which I, f- I thought was, uh, this is reasonable, um, you know, just pointing out that individualized policies, <laughs> while they're good, uh, perhaps yeah. uh, is not sufficient. So a more drastic approach needs to be taken. And, and she pointed out the role of the large companies uh, in the world that, uh, and he, even here in Iceland, that they need to do better. Um, and as I said before, she I think it was last year or 2018, no, 2017, that the action plan came into place, mm. uh, which is to, with, with the aim of, of um, uh, carbon neutrality in, in Iceland uh, for 2014. Yeah, 2040, right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have the, the mayor of Reykjavik who introduced something last year about the infrastructure here, um, transportation and so forth, trying to go greener with that. Um, so I think that's really good. Um, and we've seen, even as consumers, we've seen some things that the Icelandic companies are doing, like Iceland Air, um, that you can pay to uh, for carbon neutrality. Um, mm. And then you have Olis, who is uh, getting you to plant trees 
um, for for street purposes. So that's yeah. something they've actively done, I think, in the past year, mm-hmm. like a massive mm-hmm. tree planting campaign, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. I think is very admirable. But I, I'm always wondering because we looked at the carbon neutral plan for 2040 by Reykjavik, for instance, because mm-hmm. that is quite a big plan mm-hmm. is, for yeah. the state itself mm-hmm. in what they're how they're approaching sustainability and the future of all our resources. And the Borgalina is going to play a significant role. But if I were to play the devil's advocate, I'm just, I would have expected more in terms of car ownership Mm -hmm. because we are only proposing one way of doing it. Yes, we need a mass rapid transport system and we definitely need some kind of a high-speed connection between the airport and Reykjavik. But then we are not tackling the larger issue, which is car ownership, and we don't seem to have any policies in place that will change that, for instance. Um, Because... um, coming at like the Borgalina, they plan to, uh, with the 2040 plan, they plan to raise the percentage of people who will use the buses, which is currently, I think, at a 7 to 8 percent, to 12 percent by the year 2040. To me, that feels very little, for instance. Mm. And we are approaching the car problem in terms of parking, like accessibility mm-hmm. to parking, mm-hmm. whereas other countries would look at it in terms of what age do you get your driver's license, you know, and um, how... But there, there also um, there's more uh, emphasis being placed on electric cars. Um, there's uh, taxation cuts for that. Uh, Which was... P- proposed and then rolled back last year, wasn't um, it? And then, uh, like you had, you didn't have to pay for electric par- uh, charging points. Yeah. But then I think this year or earlier, end of last year, sometime mm-hmm. they reintroduce, they mm-hmm. introduced like a mm-hmm. fee that you had mm-hmm. to sort of mm-hmm. do. Yeah, yeah. And the number of charging stations, for mm-hmm. instance, mm-hmm. hasn't really caught up with what we well, need. Yeah, that part's true. But yeah. at least that's um, that's part of the the uh, part of the action plan. That Katrin introduced, and uh, I believe it was what until 2030 that it should be uh, mainly uh, electric cars or only electric cars. Mm-hmm. I don't remember. I think it's a shorter period for Reykjavik, and even with the the petroleum companies, I know that they made a pledge to cut that by 50 percent in Reykjavik area. So there are other initiatives being. Um, uh, looked at and also being implemented. Um, so yeah, of course, you know we can always find ways to do better. But yeah, there are I think it's like a balance. Things. In yeah. I, uh, they're yeah. trying to strike between mm-hmm. you know not sort of maybe being all out sort of yeah. radical yeah. about this, which is understandable. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. one of the, the 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 road network is financed to a large extent by fuel duty. So if you're removing fuel from cars and then running on electricity, the money still has to come from somewhere. So. It is a, a tough problem for the government. They mm-hmm. want to encourage mm-hmm. electric cars, but they also have to make some money mm-hmm. from them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's an interesting one. Obviously, fewer cars means less maintenance for the roads, mm-hmm. um, and, and then you could save some money. But yeah. <laughs> but I thought it was interesting with the Arctic Circle Assembly that um, it seems like every country in the world has a stake in this, understandably, of course. Mm-hmm. So I think despite, because everybody's sort of action plan really reflects like the politics of the country mm-hmm. in many ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was still interesting to see that it was still a common sort of a mm-hmm. goal. Mm-hmm. So I think that was still hopeful, mm-hmm. you know, looking from the outside in. Yeah. That yeah. is still hopeful that there is this conversation happening and, you know, hopefully we'll... What, I mean... In broad terms, what what is the Arctic Circle Conference? It was started by Olaf Ragnar Grimson, former yeah. president. Mm-hmm. It's not 
it's not um, hosted by the Icelandic government. Uh, yeah. It's it's a private affair, and it, it brings in experts and politicians, mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. they talk a lot, and presumably good things come out of it. I, I know they do, but where does it fit in the in this in the scheme of Arctic politics? Right, that's a rather good question. Um, but uh, I guess what I've seen is that this is obviously a platform that even politicians or the the, the heads of the the, mm-hmm. the states are coming to accept as a good forum to at least discuss it, yeah. ideas, exchange... Um, <coughs> and maybe removing ideas. the uh, formality of something like this, like yeah. the G20, mm-hmm, com- mm-hmm, you know, for mm-hmm. instance. Maybe this is a more neutral sort of an inclusive yeah, forum yeah. for mm-hmm, countries mm-hmm. to sort of talk about it. And just looking at the lineup of people that have been like policymakers mm-hmm. to consumers to companies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this is probably a good way to keep the conversation going, going and yeah, sort of keep definitely. everyone on their toes. Mm-hmm. So... Because, yeah, even uh, what I notice even with this session is that Iceland used the opportunity to bring across some great points on its efforts and, of course, trying to encourage countries that they know were not, um, for example, the United States, who is not on the same page with them. But at the same time, recognizing that there is a threat to to Iceland um, being in this region, I know they're talking about the acidification of the ocean the just north of the waters from yeah. here. So um, having that platform, at least, I think is a good thing. And, and you're right, it's more of a neutral yeah. um, forum. Yeah. I, I, I also thought it was really admirable that, you know, um, it's not very often that at this level you talk about, like, individual accountability mm-hmm. playing. I mean, it's important, but it's not a significant mm-hmm. role, mm-hmm. you know. Which is what she was pointing out. Exactly. That, you know, okay, while we can decide not to eat it's meat, meat <laughs> or, take the, yeah. or take the bus instead of our personal cars, that's just not uh, in itself enough. enough. Yeah. Um, Which I guess kind of, like, rounds up what we've been talking about. Yeah. Like, we need to have policymaking and implementation mm-hmm, that reflects mm-hmm. that. And and, and uh, the other Nordic countries, they're taking uh, well to this initiative. Um, they had their representatives, policymakers here as well, and they have uh, somewhat on a similar term with Iceland. Yeah, in terms Scandinavian of, uh, countries yeah, have been yeah. far ahead of Iceland in that mm-hmm. respect as well. I, I think agree. we are younger yeah. and mm-hmm. new to the mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, carbon neutral construction in Norway, mm-hmm. they've mm-hmm. had this action plan from 2010, and mm-hmm. they are looking at it like up to the mm-hmm. year 2030. Mm-hmm. So all new buildings mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. any public infrastructure project has to be carbon neutral. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think that's where we are sort of emulating them as well and going ahead. So, yeah. And of course, Arctic Affairs is is, is a lot more than just climate change at the moment. Um, And I believe the Arctic Circle Assembly um, covers the whole area of socio-economic politics. Mm -hmm. and and, Yeah. And in that, um, the American Energy Secretary said that we should be exploiting Arctic gas reserves um, for the benefit of all local peoples and to do so sustainably. What do we think of that? (laughs) Yeah. I think even though we said that it's probably a neutral venue, I think most or everybody expresses the official or unofficial stance of their respective politics back home. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I... I don't think I'm the only one who would disagree with Rick Perry's stance on this. <laughs> <laughs> Including John Kerry, who yes. was also there. Yes, yeah. Yeah. so um, they're prob- I think the good thing is that they were clearly the minority amongst mm-hmm. a whole host of 
mm-hmm. people standing on the other side. And I think that should be the takeaway, that mm-hmm. that sort of a thinking is on its way out. I that couldn't agree more. <laughs> seems like a good uh, spot at which to move on to a different topic. Mm-hmm. Um, question is, which one? School waste. <laughs> Food waste at school. Yeah, oh, which no. is... is Clearly linked to the first. To exactly you know. the first topic we're talking <laughs> yeah. about. Yeah. Food yeah. waste is is yeah. one of the world's major um, environmental mm-hmm. issues. Yes. And Icelandic children apparently not helping. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think that follows the trend of the society as a whole when it comes to food mm-hmm. waste because yes. I think in 2015 as well as 2017 there was some sort of a research a about this, right? And then they found that five thousand eight hundred tons of food was going to waste, and then now one third of we're uh, actually for the we've significant we've we've consistently rated top in in that we recycle the least mm-hmm, and we waste mm-hmm. the most. The most, yeah, yeah. So this is not surprising. But yeah, what's surprising exactly. to me is that um, I don't recall her name. The one who was doing the research, Rag- uh, Rag- she men- she mentions yeah. that. Um, Yes, yeah. she mentioned. I, it was. I found it interesting that she had somehow brought class into this because for me, school is one place where you have mm-hmm. a greater degree of control in a sense in the choices that you offer. You are sitting down to lunch at a very specific time, and this is what served a sort of you know a framework that seldom at home. I have mm-hmm. a six-year-old. I'm imagining you have kids, mm-hmm. and so I I, fi- I thought that was interesting. But I agree with Clary that you know this is not a a trend that is unexpected. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and so as part of again, we're kind of late to the party, but as part of this action plan on climate change because it's now being viewed as a climate change issue. And so as part of that, uh, I know the government is working on this action plan to uh, to reduce that and and um Uh, this would uh, hopefully, you know, be in line with what is happening in our Nordic, con- in the other Nordic countries. Um, you know, I was looking at it and I found the models of some of these countries to combat food waste uh, very interesting. Um, <laughs> Finland introduced something called the uh, happy hour, mm. which is uh, food uh, after nine o'clock. This was uh, for the supermarkets, so they found that the supermarkets needed to do better, and so the supermarkets have this uh, happy hour where food uh, products are at sixty percent, which are on their way out of date, mm. uh, for sixty uh, percent discount for those kind of foods. Um, and even in Denmark, they're doing something as well, um, and they've reduced their waste by about fourteen thousand ton, or twenty five percent within a four year period. No, three, two year period. Sorry, That's from two thousand fifteen to two thousand seventeen. It's more than significant. Um, right. So, the, so uh, which translates to about four point four billion Danish kroners. So there's a lot going on around us, and for this action plan, I know that at least you don't have to, uh, or Iceland isn't. Uh, doesn't have to engineer something but there's yeah. a lot going on which is working in other countries that we could adopt here as well. For me it was so. interesting that in Finland the solution seems to be just simplest that mm-hmm. you know the kids are serving themselves. Mm-hmm. In most of the Nordic countries kids are serving themselves mm-hmm. so automatically they're taking lesser food and mm-hmm. wasting the least. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it was interesting that in Iceland they are getting the food already mm-hmm. served to mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. Uh, but we are wasting the most yeah. so maybe it's a simple thing of 
maybe it adds to the school lunch time. Mm-hmm. I don't know, mm-hmm. uh, but maybe offering more choices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is um, the idea of it yeah, to make sure they eat the vegetables, though? Because if they serve themselves, they just won't take any vegetables. <laughs> but it turns out that they're going to the trash anyway. So, mm. you know, would then the solution be that there's a soup, like with mm-hmm. vegetable soup, or like mm-hmm. we treat mm-hmm. the leftovers mm-hmm. better? Mm-hmm. So you have you have um, this, uh, I don't know if you know, but skola mat- yes. matir, or I, I don't mm-hmm. think Reykjavik used that. Um, versus other, because I lived in Karatai before, yes. and they had that, which the, where uh, the children, children would serve yes. themselves. Yes. Um, uh, but I don't know. Reykjavik doesn't have that, so again, you're, maybe that has something to do with it. I don't know. And and I remember how their policy was with respect to food waste. Um, they, you know, you were children were supposed to collect all the food in a separate bin mm-hmm. and then you know trash or whatever in a separate and so uh, there I don't know how they dispose of it then but <laughs> at least how they collected it was um, yeah, yeah but I think it's interesting like what you pointed mm-hmm. out that it is a reflection of society mm-hmm. because it's interesting what the head of the research also kind of mm-hmm. admits mm-hmm. to that you mm-hmm. know the children are not used to eating fruits and vegetables at home mm-hmm. so they're of mm-hmm. course not going to eat it eat at it school, at school. Yeah. so I think the debate is yeah. much bigger than that mm-hmm. and I think mm-hmm. we need to you know, make some big significant changes mm-hmm, at mm-hmm. every home level mm-hmm, that can be translated yeah. there. And it yeah. was worded in a way of affordability. Some households yes. can't afford to be feeding their children fruit mm-hmm. and veg. Mm-hmm. And that shouldn't be the case, should it? Mm-hmm. Exactly. It, uh, for me, it was interesting that it was tied to class, that, you know, mm-hmm. that's not that's something that mm-hmm. I did not but, expect. But, you know, but of one, course. Of, one mm-hmm. of the issues a few years ago was that it was easier to purchase um, sugary and unhealthy food for your children rather than to buy healthy food for your children. So obviously that's something the government needs to look into. I know that we had the situation of uh, the, the sugar tax, but then what happened was the stores raised the prices. prices. Of the, so it didn't work. So I guess um, trying to monitor that and, and combat what is happening there. It, it has it's, to it's go hand in hand because yeah. affordability is one thing, but I think choices mm-hmm. within each of those brackets mm-hmm. is another. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I guess, you know, uh, like we've been talking about, it comes down to regulations mm-hmm. and policy mm-hmm. making. We need to look at the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where does this news fit with the this topic of discussion a few weeks ago, which was Reykjavik Borg um, wanting to... Reduce the amount of meat, meat. Mm-hmm. in the city schools. <laughs> that went down well with many. <laughs> <laughs> They're still looking at the ideas, but yeah. this research seems to suggest that that wouldn't necessarily be helpful because the mm-hmm. kids are eating the meat mm-hmm. and they're throwing away the other stuff. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what does this mean? You know, is it is it better to waste more <laughs> that isn't meat mm-hmm. or to consume more meat and waste less overall? I don't know. Mm-hmm. When my daughter started kindergarten. The teacher said that typically the child has to try something seven times consecutively to accept it, for instance. So their approach was you don't, oh, she doesn't like broccoli, for instance. Then it's not that you stop serving broccoli. It just consistently makes an appearance and then you have no choice but to get broccoli. And I'm just wondering if it's time to go back to basics. So you wasted six times before you get to the seventh. I- <laughs> Hopefully then followed by a lifetime of no more broccoli no more waste. Well, maybe. Hopefully, right. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. It's, it's definitely a challenge and it has to be looked at in, in, a, in a much wider context than, than it's be, uh, and not in vacuum. Yes, you know, one, not in because, isolation. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And I don't know what you, your guys' experience is of it, but some of the comments that we got on the news 
of this this week was just that maybe the food isn't good enough, isn't cooked well enough in well, summer schools. to be fair, um, when my my kids were in Karabai and getting school amounted, I've never had them complain about the food. But they complain a lot about the food in Reykjavik. Uh, and I know they've talked about the food being way too salty, mm. <laughs> which right. I brought to the school's attention. Um, and then I got the the feedback that maybe it was them being sensitive to the food rather than because no one else had that that issue. <laughs> I think so. it's interesting that in Lake Scully's families with children, I don't think they very often complain about the food mm-hmm. in Lake Scully's. Mm-hmm. But then mm-hmm. Lake Scully's very often, almost mm-hmm. everyone, I think, without exception, cook mm-hmm. their own food on the premises. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, yes, the food wastage is still an issue because I have friends who worked mm-hmm. in the school kitchens, mm-hmm. for instance. But I think overall, the schools at the Lake Scully level, I think the food is okay. My daughter gets Skolomatr, mm-hmm. for instance, and mm-hmm. I've looked at the online menu and mm-hmm. I wasn't very thrilled mm-hmm. about it. Mm-hmm. So she takes lunch from home mm-hmm. and her school, but it's an international school. So most kids in her class seem to get food from home, mm-hmm. for instance, mm-hmm. uh, because... It, the school menu doesn't always reflect the diversity of the students. So mm-hmm. I don't know if that's maybe some... But the choices, yes. I think they're quite repetitive mm-hmm. and stayed. <laughs> and even when it comes to simple things like boiled fish, mm-hmm. it can be nice or it can be nasty, depending mm-hmm. on how it's how it's made as well. Exactly. Okay. Time is rattling on. Shall we move on to uh, another topic? Yes. Possibly the last one, actually. UNESCO. Yes, let's go. UNESCO, yeah. Um, <laughs> this is another one of those stories, I think, that, yes, we threaten things. <laughs> we talk about maybe this will happen, but it probably won't. But it is a major issue. Um, mm-hmm. Diving in Silvra is just so, so popular because it's some of the clearest mm-hmm. water yeah. on earth um, that it's threatening the whole UNESCO certification of the National Park. Mm-hmm. So what is to be done? <laughs> What was the number? Do they say like 76,000 dives a year? Mm -hmm. That's, uh, isn't that the old conundrum? You know, like, yes, it's a sensitive area, Mm -hmm. but then we're making money off of it and Mm -hmm. people are getting to experience this. And I guess this is just like any other discussion. It kind of maybe explains what the US was talking about. Like, Mm -hmm. we want to do this in a sustainable fashion while profiting our people. Exactly. And I feel like this is not so far (laughs) off. And this debate has been ongoing in Iceland with regards to tourism Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. a really long time. Mm -hmm. Then I guess the question is, does it then belong more to the people who are paying to dive there or does it belong to the people who've always had it and who decides the accessibility to mm-hmm. natural wonders that nobody made that have been here? So is our role then to be just caretakers or do mm-hmm. we yeah, have yeah. checks and balances in yeah, place yeah. to mm-hmm. make yeah. sure there's a balance? That's true. So there, yeah, they, I think there are, what, seven diving companies, companies that have access yeah. to it. So you're right. Who who benefits um, from that? Um, I know that the complainant who complained to UNESCO says that, you know, Iceland is pr- prioritizing profit over protection. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, because of the diving that's going on there, it's uh, it's uh, affecting the, the flora and the fauna in the area. Um what to do? <laughs> mm. uh, it's a question. I, you know, these are supposed to be protected sites, and so if if you're going to have that name, mm-hmm. I guess it, you can't have it both ways. I think, um, 
and again, I don't know who is and benefiting more. And aren't people more. coming to mm. dive there because of the protected status also? Mm. That mm. also adds to the attraction of a place that, you know, yes, this has a UNESCO mm-hmm. tag, for instance, and mm-hmm. it is really unique. Mm-hmm. But I guess it's the bigger question of how we deal with tourism in Iceland. Um, I sometimes feel like we're constantly surprised that, oh, we didn't expect it to be this popular, <laughs> so we didn't think about it. But, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like sort of we'll cross that bridge when it comes and we are mm-hmm. at that bridge mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. So and it's no surprise tourism may be slowing down, but we will continue to have people visiting. So this is probably just going to be maybe it's nothing or maybe it's something and this will change the way we approach tourism mm-hmm. and the sensitivity yeah. of our landscape. Yeah. Well, with respect to, you know, uh, possibly being delisted because of because of that. I was just looking at how many countries have landed on the the, you know, the delist or or how many countries have been delisted and I think there was Oman who asked to be delisted because they found gas um gas on the on the site okay. uh, where the UNESCO <laughs> So, which would affect 70% of the protected um, status. Uh, status. Yeah. And so they asked to be taken off. And then there was um, Germany. Uh, they did a, con- a reconstruction of the building. And so UNESCO said that, well, the, you no, know, it, does not it, it doesn't count that. anymore. So, And then I think it was in 2017 that uh, Georgia, there were two cathedrals, a monarch- monas- monastery and a, and a cathedral. Um, so they're partially delisted according to UNESCO because they've restored the status of one part, mm. <laughs> the cathedral, but not the monastery, uh, because they renovated it. So uh, I'm not sure how strict they are in terms of, uh, you know, delisting mm-hmm. people, but obviously there are environmentalists here who are concerned about that and has brought it to the attention of UNESCO. Also, the one so, who brought it to the attention of UNESCO, wasn't mm-hmm. he working with... Sinkvetlir, for instance, and mm. didn't think that people weren't taking his complaint seriously enough, yeah. and therefore he approached yeah, UNESCO yeah, for yeah. visibility, of course. Mm. And, and he was advised to by yeah, the Sinkvetlir yeah. committee. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm also thinking, you know, 76,000 dives, but mm-hmm. seven companies, lot, seven companies mm-hmm. sort of doing this, yeah. then maybe in terms of a practical approach, mm-hmm. that then at what point does it become too many dives? Is 7,600 okay, mm-hmm. and then you're still, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. in the safe zone? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then does that come down to limited access, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which other countries have done with success? I mean, only a certain number of people can go to Machu Picchu, for instance, or Bhutan. So, mm-hmm. Well, I was, I was talking to a friend of mine this weekend who is a diver, and she said that the the license, the cost to license to dive there is only a thousand kroners if oh. you pay it directly to the to the park, which you can mm-hmm. do as a private individual. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but that these tour companies are charging mm-hmm. up to 40,000 kroner mm-hmm, for a day mm-hmm, trip. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're just advertising it widely as a profit-making initiative. Right, right. Yeah. And they're getting inexperienced right. divers yeah. in there who, yeah. who kick up the silt yeah. and make the water cloudy. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that does seem to be, mm-hmm. there should be a way to make it mm-hmm. more attractive for experienced divers mm-hmm. who've been wanting to go there for mm-hmm. years, mm-hmm. as opposed to people who've never dived yeah. or yeah. not dived very often mm-hmm. who are saying, oh, maybe mm-hmm. we'll do that mm-hmm. tomorrow. Yeah. yeah, it would be interesting, though, to for these companies, seven companies, you know, 
how do they contribute back to the park? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, as a matter of saying that, okay, we all benefit from it, and you're right, perhaps having more experienced divers going in. Um, but, but you know, it would be interesting to know how they benefit. In how most they other countries, like Thailand, for instance, or anywhere where diving mm-hmm. is popular, you need to be a paddy level, mm-hmm. paddy five or something, certified diver to go mm-hmm, into mm-hmm. the thing. And if you have to be assisted, those are done in different waters, mm-hmm, for instance. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I would imagine with a status like this, the Silver Canyon would be mm-hmm, something mm-hmm. where the eligibility to be able to dive, regardless how much you're paying for it, mm-hmm would come with a lot of experience and responsibility. I don't think they let complete novices dive there. But you can no, snorkel you can. there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. But then another question is, everybody visiting Thing leaves a footprint and causes some damage, whether mm-hmm. they dive or just walk. <laughs> yeah. And that's a whole other yeah. <laughs> kettle of fish, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. I guess that's the counter-argument for yes. the people who... But, yeah, because mm. <laughs> it's... A, I, I just... I visited um, earlier this year, and I think I hadn't gone for, like, two years. And I was surprised as to the massive change. You now have to pay for the parking space. And, and there's a new things. visitor centre, and we have walkways, exactly, and we, right? we still have porta potties. Right. <laughs> so it's, which, is, which is an infrastructure just, problem, yeah, but we yeah. continue to have porta potties. Yeah. Yeah, so that was that was interesting. So I guess um, yeah, it's it's going to be interesting to see how they resolve this one because mm-hmm. uh, the diving or the snorkeling is not just the only problem, but as you pointed out, the, the entire park is open to to thousands of visitors every year, <laughs> and it's a microcosm for mm-hmm. all of Iceland. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, there we go. Just like that, we are out of time. Uh, the Week in Iceland will return to roof.is forward slash English, Roof English on Facebook, to the Roof app and as a podcast, including on Spotify, next Monday, the 21st of October. My sincere thanks to my guests, Claudia Shoney-Wilson and Shruti Basapa, and thanks too to Lydia Grietas-Dottir for running the studio. We end the show on the number one song from the Raustur chart, and this week for the second week in a row, that is Birgir Steb with Letting Go. Bye for now. I used to stay up late and wonder how I live without you, without you. Too much of this, not enough of that, everything's so wrong about me.
Now I'm here today to say that I'm letting go.